0: I don't believe in God, but I miss Him. Pastor Paul started his message last week with this quote. It was from Julian Barnes' book, Nothing to be Frightened Of. I don't believe in God, but I miss Him is the opening line of an atheist's philosophic reflection on death. And Pastor Paul went on to explore how that sentiment captures our age in which for many people... God is absent, absent from our education, our laws, our health care, our workplace, and our homes, but we miss Him. God's absence haunts us. We see the symbols of faith everywhere. Religious artifacts litter our world. His name is on our money. His commandments echo in our laws. He has endowed us with inalienable rights. He has shaped our art and our music. He has given us our calendar. So today in places like the United States, the United Kingdom, the countries of the European Union, and Canada, many people don't believe in God, but the memories linger on. But there are others. There are folks all over the world today who believe in some sort of God. And these folks share a lot in common with the ancient Canaanites of biblical times, Scandinavians of the 8th and 9th centuries. The Aztecs and the Incas of the 15th century. These people, like many of our neighbors and even us, have asked these questions First, what do I want out of life? Secondly, how do I go about getting it? And third, how does God or the gods fit into this equation? Over the ages, people have wanted rain and grain, they have wanted safety and security. They wanted to live happy and full lives. They wanted children and grandchildren. And these people have tried to figure out what part the gods play in all of this. And so beliefs developed. If the gods are pleased with us, then they protect us and provide for us. If the gods are displeased, our crops could be destroyed, our sheep and cows no longer provide offspring, our enemies defeat us in war. And so we have religion. People have figured out how to live in harmony with the gods so they could live happy and fruitful lives, have an abundant harvest, plenty of sheep and goats and cows, peace and safety, houses full of children and barns full of grain. So the question is, how do we keep the gods happy? And you're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with me? I'm a Christian. I believe in the God of the Bible. I don't have an altar in my backyard where I sacrifice pigs or chickens. I don't recite any incantations to get what I want at home, at school, or at work. But I want to challenge you this morning to rethink some of this. And here's the simple proposition I want to put before you. What we want is religion. What we want is religion. Now, before you take up stones or begin the heresy trial, hear me out. To explore this proposition, I'd like to take you back to a very familiar narrative, a parable that Jesus told. It's a parable that we often in the church refer to as the parable of the prodigal son. You'll find it in your Bible in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus was a master storyteller. He had a way of taking deep, complex truths and making them understandable by wrapping them in a story. Jesus told stories about masters and servants, about shepherd and sheep, about sowing seeds, about wise and foolish builders, about those who really are good neighbors. Here's the way the stories would work. Jesus would tackle an abstract spiritual subject like forgiveness, but He would do so by telling a story. So Peter asks, how many times should I forgive someone who sinned against me? And Jesus responds by telling a story. A story about a servant who forgave a debt of millions of dollars to one of his, uh, his servants, but who that servant then turned around and refused to give one of his fellow servants grace, who owed him just a few hundred dollars. What Peter was supposed to get out of this story is that his master, that is, God, has forgiven him all of these, his sins, a huge debt, so he should be willing to forgive what are, by comparison, small grievances incurred by his friends and brothers. For these stories to work, Jesus had to use familiar characters and circumstances. Those who listened had to be able to realistically envision a shepherd searching for a lost sheep or a farmer out sowing seed. These stories couldn't be science fiction or contain characters or circumstances beyond the realm of common experience. This doesn't mean that Jesus didn't throw his audiences a curve every now and again. When Jesus was asked by a Jewish religious leader the question, who is my neighbor? He responded by telling the story in which the hero was a Samaritan. Now Samaritans were considered half-breeds both spiritually and physically they were despised by the Jews of Jesus' day. And it was a Jewish religious leader who asked the question. So Jesus makes the hero of the story, the man who truly was a neighbor, a member of a despised minority. Our story, the parable of the prodigal son, also contains a very interesting twist. So, Jesus begins the story that we want to look at today with these words, a man had two sons. As we will discover, Jesus intends his audience, both then and today, to see in the father of this story, God. And he intends to portray, through the younger and the older sons, two ways that people have tried to figure out how to please the gods. So we start out with the younger son who embodies one way that people have tried to relate to God and interesting enough the younger of these sons comes to his father as Jesus begins the story and asks for his portion of the inheritance then and there right on the spot. Now in 2021 we may not have a full appreciation for what that means but what at its bottom line it means is what the son wants is his father's things and not the father. This will create financial difficulties for his dad. He will have to sell off part of the family estate to comply with his son's request. So things get interesting real quickly. You can almost sense that Jesus' audience leaning in as he throws in this plot twist. So what happens? The father agrees to this son's outlandish request. You can almost hear the gasps rising from the crowd. This sort of thing just doesn't happen. Sure, grown children have crazy ideas every now and again, but a good Jewish father would either have laughed off the suggestion or given his son a stern reprimand. But not in Jesus' story. The dad actually agreed to his son's request and to top it off, his father allowed his son to sell his portion of the estate, part of the family's holdings. Jesus' listeners had to have a sense now that this just wasn't just a cozy little story about a wealthy father and his two boys. No, they had to have a feeling that they were headed off into strange territory as Jesus told this story about a very unusual family. And so Jesus continues the story. The younger son does indeed sell off his portion of the estate, and he leaves town. Some scholars argue that the reason why the younger son left was because his actions were so disgraceful and deemed that way that he shamed himself and his family. He had to leave town. So the rebel heads off, packs up everything he's got, and takes a road that leads to nonstop partying. But soon enough, the money runs out. And as Jesus tells the story, the boy comes to his senses when he was poor and starving and decided he would head back home to see if he couldn't find work for working for his father. There, literally in a pig pen, the younger boy develops a business plan. Verse 18, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son he would confess his sins to his dad and admit the errors of his ways. And then, he would propose a step forward. Make me like one of your hired servants. Basically, Dad, listen, I know I've really screwed things up, and I don't deserve to have standing in the family, or be considered a son, or live on the estate, but I could get a job as an apprentice to one of the tradesmen who do work around the farm and begin to earn some money. In time, Dad, perhaps... I could pay you back. One of the ways people feel they can be on God's good side is to be appropriately deferential and penitent and to do things, the right kinds of things, to pay God back. Now the members of the audience were starting to get comfortable again. You can almost imagine that they were thinking to themselves, this no good disgrace of a son is going to get what's coming to him. He fouled things up, and now it's time to pay the piper. But just as the audience members were settling in for a predictable ending to the story, Jesus really throws them a curve. This father, the same guy whose disrespectful son had all but wished him dead, who shared and gave up his part of the family fortune, allowed him to cash it in, this same man does something even more bizarre as Jesus tells the story the son headed back home but before he got anywhere near the family home his dad saw him coming and down the road now what Jesus says next must have caused his auditors to gasp the father picks up the edges of his robes and runs as fast as he can making a genuine public spectacle of himself as he ran through the village no self respecting father would act like this. Those listening to Jesus might have thought, I could understand a father accepting his son back home. After all, it's hard to completely turn your back on your own flesh and blood. But running right through the middle of town to welcome this kid back? A more fitting scenario would be something like this The father is sitting in his overstuffed chair in his panel den, reading the Jerusalem Post. The doorbell rings. A servant goes to the door. The servant comes back and tells the father that the son had returned. The father does not get up, but he tells his servant to escort the son in. And so the camera follows the son as he slowly walks down the long hallway and hesitatingly enters the den like a subject entering a throne room. This kid should do a little groveling. But that's not the word picture Jesus painted. Junior did not have to slink back into town. Instead, his father, in a wild and lavish display of love, almost makes a public ceremony of welcoming him back. There's no key to the city or public proclamation, but it's just about as close. Dad unmistakably invests his son with all the symbols of sonship. A fine robe, one commentators suggest that maybe even the robe that he puts on him is is his own robe. A ring, sandals for his feet, and a huge party. The fattened calf. And maybe more significantly, there's no lectures or scolding, no demands for restitution or promises of good behavior before he's welcomed back into the family. Some of those listening to Jesus must have been dumbstruck or shaking their heads in disbelief. No upstanding father would act this way. The story just keeps getting more and more strange, but they haven't heard the end of it. Jesus continues by telling about the older brother. The fattened calf has been killed, all the folks from the town have been invited to come over, music is playing, the barbecue is in full swing, and The son, the older son, hears this and he comes back near the house and he realizes that this means that his brother is not only back but that he's been fully restored to his place in the family. You would like to think that the older brother would have at least allowed his brother back but probably would have thought something about a probationary period or something like that. But what he saw, the party in the house indicated that his younger brother had been fully restored back to the family. And this had real serious consequences for him and for the entire family. The older brother hears about it, but he refuses to go in and join the party. Now, some of those who are listening to Jesus tell this parable must have thought, at last a sane and honorable person in this crazy family. What the father did was wrong. Wrong in the first place, wrong in the second place. The older brother is right not to participate in this shameful banquet. But just as they were settling into a comfort zone with the older brother, Jesus comes at them again. again. What happens next? Well, the same dad who ran through the streets and hugged and kissed the wayward son in front of the whole village goes out to the older boy who is sulking outside while everybody else in town is inside the party. Dizzy with all the twists and turns in this story, some of Jesus' auditors must have thought, this father has broken every rule in the book. Doesn't he know that sons should seek out and come out to, the, to their father? The father is in the position of power and authority. The father is not the one who goes hat in hand looking for his kids. They come into him. He doesn't go out to them. Well, this is one far-fetched story, but it's still not over. The dad approaches the older brother and begs him to come into the party. And what happens? The older boy gives his father a tongue lashing, telling him what a lousy parent he is. Look. Verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property, our property, with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I've worked hard. I've been obedient. I've earned better treatment than this. I deserve it. I haven't received it. A hush falls over the audience. Could this story get any weirder? What a dysfunctional family. A wild younger son, a father who breaks all the rules, and an older son who has no respect for his father. Maybe there will be one moment of normalcy in this tale. Maybe the father will finally find his spine, dress, address his older boy, and tell him that it's none of his business how he runs his own family. Maybe somebody will finally be put in his place. But no. As Jesus tells the story, the father offers no stern lecture to his older boy. Rather, he says this, verse 31, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He was lost and is found. Warmly and lovingly, the father tells his son that both he and his kid brother are entitled to everything he has. He tries to help the older brother see that there was no real option. We had to celebrate. Your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And that's Luke 15. Lost, found, party. Just like the first two parables Jesus told in this chapter. A lost sheep, a lost coin. What happens? It is lost. There is a search that is conducted. The lost is found and the person who finds what they've been looking for, whether a sheep or a coin, invites everyone to come and celebrate with them. And you know what? This is how the story ends. Wait, that's it? What happened? Did the older brother ever go in? How about the younger boy, given his second chance, did he make something better of his life? Jesus doesn't answer those questions. In a sense, Jesus allowed those who first heard the story to write their own ending, as he does us. I'm fairly certain that there was some who heard Jesus tell this parable who identified with the younger son. Maybe you do as well. Maybe you went on quite a spiritual road trip and got far away from God. Maybe you found yourself in an equivalent of a pigsty, but you found that there was a light on at home for you. You were confident that if you went back, you'd be welcome. I'm also confident that some who heard Jesus tell this story could see themselves in the older brother. Maybe that's where you sit this morning. I can tell you that I, personally, can identify with the older of these two boys. I've been in those sandals quite a few times. I was the good church kid. I had more pins for perfect attendance on my lapel when I was in fourth grade than my Sunday school teacher did. Some of you will get that reference. Others, I may have to explain it to you. I've looked down my self-righteous nose at the wrong kinds of people more than once. And I have felt on more than one occasion that I had Earned God's love and blessings. But, friends, regardless of who you identify with this morning, I want to tell you something. The central character of this story is not the older son or the younger son, it is the father. And I hope that as I have told the story, you have been, you have seen this wild, lavish, extravagant, exuberant, love-filled grace. The word prodigal just means wild and extravagant. Often the tag is placed on the younger son because when he went off to the far country, he was wild and extravagant with his money. But the real prodigal in this story is the father. Many times we look at this parable as the story of a wayward son who comes back home. It's an attractive story. It's a story we like to hear. The young son is the one who takes the action, he makes a request from his father, he leaves family and home, he goes to a distant country, he wakes up one day and he goes back home. He has a plan. And it seems, on a casual reading, that the plan works. But if we read the parable that way, we miss the big point, and that is, we miss grace. Wild, radical, unbounding grace. The father is really the active one in this story. The father, and Jesus here is talking about God, is the active one. He is the lover. He is the searcher and seeker. He goes out and welcomes his son back. He is the one who goes out to the older brother. The father in this story is parallel to the seeking shepherd in the first parable and the desperate woman in the second parable. But the father is not seeking sheep or coins. He seeks us his sons and daughters. But you know, we struggle with this concept. Like the younger boy who thought he could earn his way back in, and the older brother who thought he had already earned his father's love, we have a hard time with unconditional love. As I said at the beginning, something in us wants religion. We want to broker a deal with God. We want a quid pro quo relationship. We want to feel that we've done something to deserve God's love. We want to think that somehow we've done something to make God happy. And that when He's happy, He will love us and give us what we want. We don't get grace. We don't understand grace. Kenneth Bailey, a Middle Eastern scholar, said this and how true it is. For many... Grace is not only amazing, it is also unbelievable. How could it be true? After all, you get what you pay for, don't you? A lot of us, myself included, are just more comfortable with the concept of a God whose love we must earn. God is someone we must pursue. He is someone we strive to impress. We do things that... He will love us so that He will love us. But friends, this is not the God Jesus portrayed in this parable. That God is not playing hard to get. That God does not have to be wooed or plied for His favors. No, that the God that Jesus wants us to see, the prodigal father, is one who actively, lavishly, extravagantly loves us and remains constant in His love. We may want religion, but what we need is grace. Amen.